Welcome to the South Carolina New Legacy Podcast. I'm Vicki, and I am here with some of my friends today to talk to you a little bit about a new legacy project that we, we're starting to, to, to talk about on our podcast. But first, we're going to check in. Our question today is, since it's Women's History Month, is name a woman that you admire or that inspires you. And you can say a little bit about why they do. For me, it's Eleanor Roosevelt. I have always been a fan of how progressive she was for her time and how she stepped out of what was the comfortable place of a woman of her her class and position in society to really sort of try to meet and connect with people on a unique way. She was involved in the civil rights movement, and I'm just a big fan of Eleanor Roosevelt. Um, so we'll move to my left. Always move left. Always move left. All right. Um, I'm Janessa, and uh, let's see. I'm going to go a little bit more modern. So someone that's really been inspiring me right now would be Linda Sarsour and Ilhan Omar. So I'll go with two, actually. Um, I'm a big fan of Ilhan Omar. Uh, so I'm originally from Minnesota, born and raised in Minnesota in the Twin Cities. And so um, it's I just am really inspired by seeing Ilhan representing where I came from and uh, really being really brave and speaking out about um, our foreign policy and trying to engage in a more critical conversation. And I know that she's received a lot of pushback for that. And I think it's just really admirable that she's been able to um, speak up against this this wave of backlash and try to bring us into a deeper conversation that's really been shut down in so many ways. So I'm I'm inspired by that. And uh, Linda Sarsour also, um, because she was also recently put into some textbooks. So technically, it's also historical now if you're in a textbook. Yeah. And, um, and she, She's as uh, good as dead now. She, <laughs> she can retire. But I think that um, I was listening to the, the Dig podcast recently, and uh, I was just super... Shout out Dan Denver. Shout out um, to another local podcast. Well, it's not local, but another great podcast. Um, I think that she's really uh, inspirational in the way that she tackles feminism through an intersectional perspective and the way she actually lives it out in her everyday practice is just really admirable. That sounds great. Uh, well, number one, I'm uh, extremely infuriated that uh, I didn't think to uh, grab Ilan Omar before you did, because uh, she is awesome. Uh, she's also the first uh, person who I have literally seen skewered in the media so much that I had to go donate money to her just reflexively to get past it in my day. Um, <laughs> so it's not a flex, but uh, Ilhan, uh, got, you got $5 on the way from, from, from me. I am very poor. And what is your name? My name is Kurt, uh, and uh-huh. I am uh, also inspired by women. And I'm going to go way, way back. Um, and I'm going to do one that's kind of weird, and I'll explain why I do it. But I'm going to go with uh, Empress uh, Theodora, uh, who was the, an empress of the Eastern Roman Empire. Um, I could not tell you the century, but it was during the, uh, the later years of the uh, Eastern Roman Empire. She married uh, Emperor Justinian. And why I picked her is because um, by the mores of the time, she had absolutely no business being empress of the empire. She was, uh, was a, basically a, a stripper and a prostitute, what we would call a sex worker now, and elevated, I think they called them actresses at the time, but essentially <laughs> she was a Roman-era sex worker who 
eventually married the damn emperor and then essentially by most accounts ran the empire because Justinian was not that bright and she was uh, the brains of the operation. Um, and uh, it's a weird choice, I know, but... Uh, uh, Again, stepping out of people's expected yeah i look here's a a tiny biographical detail i'm still not telling you my last name nazis you're gonna have to work hard but here's a clue i grew up around strippers it's a weird thing and uh you know what uh i I admire a lady who can take it run the empire from there so yeah there you go all right all right uh my name's chris uh as a musician i'm gonna go with ella fitzgerald she was, yeah. It's she pretty, scattered like no other. Yeah, it's um, um, very, in addition to just having an amazing voice and, 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 and great tone, yeah, able to, to improvise through scatting and stuff like that. So As a jazz musician, yeah, you yeah. admire that. Yes, uh, very <laughs> much so. So, um, so yeah, go, go pick up some records. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when, I, when I type in scat on the internet to find good jazz music, I often don't get directed <laughs> to the right thing. Yeah, so. make sure you're putting in um, other keywords such yes. as okay. yes. that, um, That's the issue? Okay. Yeah, you definitely need more than just scat. Yeah, it's, it's truly, jazz is truly an American innovation because if you put European in there, it's bad. <laughs> Uh, oh, gosh. Hey, I got us off topic real quick. Hey, everyone. <laughs> you always do that, Kurt. That's true. All right, so now let's let's move on to our topic of the day, and I'm going to pass it off to Kurt. Tell us what, what we're doing. Okay, well, uh, we're going to tell you a little bit about uh, a project that we're doing called the State of the Youth. Uh, but in order to get to that as to why uh, we're doing that, I want to give you a little backstory. Uh, so in uh, 1946, right here in Columbia, South Carolina, a, uh, a group, uh, an integrated group of young radicals uh, called the uh, Southern Negro Youth Congress met and had their annual uh, conference uh, here in Columbia at the uh, uh, Township Auditorium. Mm-hmm. And on October 20th, uh, the delegates there drafted a document called the Pact of the Southern Youth. Uh, now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read you the Pact of the Southern Youth because it's uh, a little bit lengthy, but it's, it's relatively brief. And then we're going to talk about how that sort of, at least to me and how I've approached this project, mm-hmm. uh, inspired, uh, inspiring. Uh, because what we're going to see is that our, uh, the things that youth are dealing with today are the same thing they have been for the last 55 years. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So. Uh, that was 46. 54? Uh, no, 53. that's 74? 70. Uh, my, my dad was born in 1946. Even more years. <laughs> so the youth today can't even do math. Uh, so. <laughs> that is the state of our education system. Uh, and I think I think it's, it's not 2019, so that was in October, so I think it's 73 years Yeah, we're, we're, we're coming up to 75 uh, years and very soon. yeah. yeah. But uh, So here we go. Uh, Here is the Pact of the Southern Youth. We, Negro and white young people, 1,000 strong, assembled in the Southern Youth Legislature at Columbia, South Carolina, do hereby declare our common purpose to build a new and democratic South. Uh, We are Southerners. We are united in a mutual love of the Southland, a belief in the democratic way of life and the Christian ideals of human brotherhood. We are united by pride in the traditions of the great Southern statesmen, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Frederick Douglass, and Hiram Rebels, and those nameless thousands who have always fought in the South against slavery and the oppression of man by man. The sacrifice of millions of, of white and Negro youth who fought on the battlefields of Europe and Asia unite us. We are joined by our love and veneration for Franklin D. Roosevelt and the determination to 
realize the heritage he left us, his challenge to us, the, uh, the generation which has a rendezvous with destiny. Uh, we are united in a in righteous indignation and protest against the un-American and unchristian wave of mob violence, lynching, and brutality in our Southland. We are bind, bound by our common needs, secure and well-paid jobs, the unrestricted right to vote, to own the land we till, adequate medical and hospital care, homes for our families, better education for all, protection from mob violence and police brutality, guarantee of a peaceful world through the continuation of Roosevelt's policy of collaboration with our wartime allies. We've come to realize that only through acting together can we reach these goals. We are resolved no longer to be victims of the old Nazi game of divide and rule. We have come to understand that discrimination against Negro youth in all its forms is but a device used by economic royalists and plantation landlords to cheat the young white people and, and our entire generation of Southern youth uh, of Southern youth of the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in a democratic South. We know that only when Negro youth achieve the full citizenship promised by them in the Constitution and earned by them in their patriotic devotion to the cause of democracy, only then can millions of young white people go forward and our Southland prosper. Our generation knows that these aspirations cannot be easily won, that only our common efforts and intelligent action through organization of students, veterans, young workers, and young women will guarantee their achievement. Uh, we know we must join together with all democratic-minded groups in the South to go forward. Our generation today is faced with two alternatives, either a life of continued poverty, ignorance, and division, or the opportunity through unity to build a free, prosperous, and happy South as part of the democratic America in a, a peaceful world. It is for this solemn reason that we have a rendezvous with destiny pledge to join hands to realize the rich promise of the South. We who have liberated ourselves from the crippling bonds of racial prejudice call upon Southern youth in all walks of life to affix their signatures to this declaration of our purpose and to join with us in common action to make our dream for a better South and a better America come true. Mic drop. So. And is that not so relevant still in 2019? Absolutely. The thing that immediately sticks out to me um, is obviously the need to venerate Franklin D. Roosevelt. He is still the absolute boy. <laughs> now, uh, no, the, uh. the, the, the needs, the common needs uh, stick right out. Every single one of them are literally, if you were to list uh, what is affecting youth today, and in short, that's kind of what the state of the youth essentially is, that these are all, if you were to sit down and to make a list uh, of everything that is affecting uh, youth in America today, and uh, spoiler alert, that is essentially what the state of the youth is. All of those five five uh, categories that we've come up with, and we we I'm going to read them to you because Kurt can never remember them all. That's oh well, except that Kurt wrote them down. <laughs> <laughs> I used a technology called paper. Ooh. Yeah. All right. So it's healthcare, voting, criminal justice economics and education. Those are the five topics that we're covering in the state of the youth through various research forms and things right. like and, that. And I feel like this would be a good time to maybe introduce what the state of the youth is. I think that's right. And I so believe... we're going to pause here and, and talk about why this is all coming together. So the pact that um, Kurt just read is part of something that inspired our organization to start the state of the youth And we're definitely project. going to do a whole... Um, whole podcast on that Congress on sub, because yeah. it, it, was, it was really interesting stuff. So what is the state of the youth, guys? The state of the youth is a report that the new Legacy Project is doing. Um, it's an educational organizing tool that will gauge the socioeconomic conditions of 
youth and young adults in the state of South Carolina. We are planning on incorporating current statistics alongside personal narratives to, to, yeah, kind of reveal in each of those categories where South Carolina stands. Let's talk about what youth is. I guess that's another thing we should define here. Right. And so what we're really trying to do is re-inspire this idea of of the the goals that originated at the Southern Southern Youth Congress and, and figure out where are we at as youth and to define what youth is, uh, we're actually using a very broad definition of that, which stretches all the way to the age of 44, um, based on census data collection, which um, tracks. So basically, the data goes from 18 to 44. So we couldn't cap it at a, at a place in between. So we really are trying to track basically from birth all the way up until um, you start having school. families and right. things. And then like you know, that. even depending on whether you go into higher education or not, both through school and then trying to find jobs and, and starting your life and being financially stable after that time. And so we're tracking um, youth, state of the youth, everyone up until the age of 44. And, I, think, and I think that's pretty relevant, too, because if you look at the uh, the way power has expressed itself generally, generationally, at least among uh, the, le- the left, it has largely been uh, a project of, dare I say, old people, uh, people from the baby boomer generation, um, are essentially holding the reins of power. If you look at all the young people in Congress today, with the exception of this last uh, election cycle where we had a number of uh, 20 and 30 year old uh, young women elected to the Congress, uh, uh, as Democrats, uh, largely the young people are all Republicans. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the Democratic bench is incredibly. Uh, is, is incredibly old at this point. And that is something that the founders of the New Legacy Project witnessed within the, uh, the South Carolina Progressive Network, uh, Not, and it is not a Democratic Party apparatus at all, but just to say... No, oh, no but, we, we're very critical yeah. of almost everyone. <laughs> but just not to conflate those two, uh-huh. we, are, we are, of course, uh, I think, soundly of the left. Uh, but that said, uh, we, we noticed that as well, too. Our, our, our staff and uh, leadership... Uh, boards and so forth were tending uh, very, very much higher in uh, the age bracket, and uh, we needed to have some sort of uh, way to address that and to also train uh, a new, new leadership within the group. And I think I think that we're succeeding. I, and but I'm going to go back to it. I think 44 is a reasonable place to to cap it because, like you're talking about, people who came up in a very different society from their parents. I am an older. I'm I'm on that middle cusp of between millennial and Gen X. I definitely fall in the Gen X thing, but like I relate more to millennials because our experiences were similar. That's that's exactly what I was trying to get at. Is that essentially Gen X and below is Uh essentially uh, we'll say youth at this point in time. Gen X is now finally starting to express itself in in power, but the boomers still have the the, uh, strike. And I I think it is actually very interesting in terms of the state of the youth to track. So often we focus just on school and performance Mm -hmm. in schools, and we don't track what happens when you leave school or you graduate high school or don't graduate high school. What are the economic opportunities? Where do you go? Exactly. We lose that data, so we just focus on the school and we don't look at the whole person. Um, throughout the age of life. And and young parents experience a very different reality than their parents did as as well. We're not talking about people who are raising kids in 1980. They're raising kids in 2019 um, with technology and et cetera. You know what I'm talking yeah. about, guys? So I think, yeah. I think it's a good, I think 18 to 44 is 
right. a reasonable range. Yeah, and so basically we're trying to figure out what is the state of the youth, where are we at um, throughout up until the age of 44 in our research, where are we at in terms of these goals that we set out, that were set out in the 1940s, and where are we now today in terms of economics, criminal justice, voting, healthcare, education, and what we want to do with that data is then take our findings and influence policy changes, figure out where where should we be moving, what still needs to happen, and as you know, part of the, the new legacy project, then take that information and figure out how to make things move forward. Where do we need to tackle our efforts based on the data that we find? And and we want to share the data with you, and that's something we'll be doing in future podcasts as well, so that you can help us make these changes, so that you can interact with us, and so that you yourself can be more informed when you're thinking about policy from a South Carolina perspective. And I also hope that um, if if we have any older listeners, uh, and I know podcasting as a medium tends to skew younger, uh, but hopefully we will correct that. Uh, and, uh-huh. and podcasting is for every, all the people. Uh, that I hope that uh, they can maybe get uh, some perspective, I guess, uh, on what it is to be young. Uh, and I say this uh, because I, I think there are some monumental changes in that um, that under 44 group. Because uh, if we talk about the Gen Xers, just in the epoch that we're in now, uh, which is of course the most important epoch ever because we're living in it, right? We're narcissists here. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, the basically, Gen X is the first generation to be exposed to computers from a mm-hmm. young age. And I'd say millennials are first generation to pr- most likely demographically have had the internet in their minds and, yeah. and eyes and body uh, from from childhood onward. And and I would add that that people in the late 30s, early 40s are starting to experience a dip, very different thing from their parents. Like you've got the, their parents who maybe have lost all their money in the um, stock market crash right. and everything, and then they have kids they're raising who are going to college, and there's a, a unique crush there as well. This, yeah, this, this and that's is... going to keep happening to people as, as they age. Yeah, I, it, it, we're seeing now uh, among young people, as as we define it, uh, a closing of the horizon of hope in America. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping, I think, there's been some positive uh, developments in the last couple years. I think um, we're going to change that, but that's uh, it's a hopeful statement and less of a uh, numbers-driven statement. Because the, mm-hmm. uh, right now, we're seeing massive amounts of people um, with student debt. Student that debt, that's a, exactly a, a what I was I was yeah, alluding to. Basically, they, have, they come out of college with a mortgage already. Uh-huh. Um, we have kids. Think about it now. Imagine that you were you're six or seven and you're first learning about like the world, what it is. Um, what is the future going to look like? And science is telling you that oh, in 20 years, the coastal cities are going to be underwater. Uh, <laughs> or we have 10 years to fix everything, and uh, and other than that, we're, we're basically screwed, uh, environmentally speaking. Uh, mm-hmm. that and is then we have the, the, the prison pipeline into from schools to prisons that we're, we're constantly de- dealing with. Like a quarter of all, and again, we'll support these data points in later podcasts, and this is not a perfect system right. here, but like I think a quarter of all African American males are at some point in their lives spend time in prison. Right. Yeah. And uh, it, yes, it is. Uh, it's a crazy statistic when you break it down because if you look at it just as a percentage, it's not crazy. But when you realize it aggregate, like you said, one in five, I think somehow yeah. end up in the judicial, uh, the criminal justice system and, by by the age of thirty. And and, and it's because of how we're treating them when we educate them 
uh, our young folks, that's who I'm referring to when I'm referring to them, we're treating people differently in the education system as well because you've got the whole situation where, like, in South Carolina, we've created a caste system, whether you live in a rural school or in a, a an urban school, you're getting a completely different education to some degree. And I think it's it, it's important to because you mentioned that that I think for a, a lot of uh, black people and people of color um, that they've experienced um, a lot of of this <laughs> for generations now. Mm-hmm. But you you are starting to see now um, a massive increase, and in there's an economist named August Deaton who shared an, a, a Nobel Prize for basically discovering this um, that. Essentially, white people are starting to have the same uh, economic future as people of color now, which is um, bad, and that uh, we're seeing this massive uh, increase in uh, mortality of people just outside of that youth bracket yep. that we're talking about. Like, people are going to die sooner than their parents. Right. Um, they don't have the prospect for wealth acquisition. They're dying at 50 from drinking themselves to death, uh, or, or heroin, or with fentanyl, and so forth. And, and it's, it's and all of these things have a regional aspect here in South Carolina as well that maybe other parts of the nation don't experience because of how their system is governed. Would you agree? I'd say, yeah, I'd say there's some things that we have that's right on the national. I mean, we were hit pretty hard by that heroin epidemic that I think everybody's aware of. But I think our, our hospital crisis, which we're going to get into uh, a little bit today, but we'll talk about more in detail on our health installment, yep. um, is somewhat unique to South Carolina. There's probably some other states facing similar things, but we're, it's unique at least regionally because mm-hmm. the southern states are the ones that have largely rejected the Medicaid expansion, which is a big cause of this. So, I just think it's interesting to me as, as we just sit here and we can list off all of these different elements that we see in our society, and then we look back at the list of um, common needs that was written in the Pact of Southern Youth. I just think it's so interesting how it's just so, so similar still. You know, um, I was hoping, could you maybe read those off again? Absolutely. That's what I was about to say again. So these are, we're bound by our common needs, and those needs listed are secure and well-paid jobs, the unrestricted right to vote, to own the land we till, uh, adequate medical and hospital care, homes for our families, better education for all, protection from mob violence and police brutality, and guarantee of a peaceful world through the continuation of Roosevelt's policy of collaboration with our wartime allies. Right. Uh, and I, I want to I start with the secure and well-paid jobs. That's something we'll cover in our economics piece of the state of the youth when we get to it. But right now, nobody feels secure in their job. No, and we're seeing a, com- a complete... Uh, and Chris, I'm sorry, were you about to say something? We're, we're seeing a huge increase in the, uh, the the structure of the way the job market works. It used to be it's the gig economy, right? Ex- that's exactly it, the gig economy. And, uh, and I think some of the folks here are impacted by that in, in this room. Like, you do a lot of different jobs to make your income meet up, right? Yep. And <laughs> I, I certainly do, uh, says the guy sitting in front of hundreds of books he's selling online. Yeah. Um, just just to make ends meet. And that's that's not good. That's not something our parents had to worry about. Right. So that's bullet point one, right? Secure and well-paid jobs. That's com- covered under our economics bullet point. Mm-hmm. And then we've got number two is the unrestricted right to vote. Uh, and again, let's let's talk about what happened in Georgia with the, the Secretary of State who was running for governor 
trying to basically restrict voting for black people because they knew he she he knew they'd vote for his opponent. Yeah, and I think I'm I would be interested to see the larger discussion of what took place at the SMYC and how much of that was. Uh, if any, was also around voting age, because we have to remember that at this point, um, you, most people uh, could not vote. Well, until they were until 21. They were 21. And additionally, if you were black, you, the chance of you voting was probably slim to none. Especially point, so. if you were from the southern states. You might have had a better chance if you lived in New York or some of the right. um, northern states. But, like, here in South Carolina, like, our vote, they're not necessarily trying to to restrict who gets to vote, but they try very hard to control who we get to vote for. Um, they've created a, sort of an elite ruling class that ha- that runs the state now in, in our legislature. Uh, and additionally, I mean, they, I'd say they, they're still restricting, whether they're doing it intentionally or just f- force of habit, mm-hmm. they're still in, in, in restricting the right to vote in the sense that we still have um, voter registration and not automatic voter registration, mm-hmm. which thankfully some states are starting to implement, um, you have to go through a process and you have to, and, and, and this is something that I learned recently, is that uh, the number one driver, they always talk about young, youth not being engaged to vote, mm-hmm. um, and that is true, and one of the reasons why that is, it has nothing to do with like uh, problems of youth or, or a lack of civic participation in young young people for you know that they just don't have the right moral fiber. Uh, apparently, the number one predictor of whether or not you vote uh, in any given election is how recently you've moved, uh-huh. because you have to re-register and it's just mm-hmm. a hoop that you have to jump through. Yep. And guess who moves around a lot? People who are cha- going to school for I, the first I missed, time. I missed an election because I had just graduated from college. And my registration was still back at my parents' house and not um, at my new jobs. Yeah, I mean, I, I have to say, when I moved out of Minnesota, I was honestly shocked that other states didn't have same-day voter registration. I think you guys um, are one of the only states that have it. It, it just seemed so logical, and it was so easy. And, and then I, I guess I didn't really study voter registration in other places and mm-hmm. was quite surprised. Well, do you, we can talk a little bit about having Election Day off, too. The House bill one or something that they've got going on up in Washington now, the very first thing they passed was to do automatic voter registration, election day as a holiday, Mm -hmm. and some of the other little things that will help. It's not going to get a vote in the Senate because Mitch McConnell basically said, no, that's the Democrats are trying to take over just by making it easy to vote. I think that Congresswoman Presley also tried to push through, like, uh, lowering the voting age to 16. So I, I haven't heard a lot of discussion mm-hmm. about it either. But I think that they were trying to just change things up, put some different proposals in there. I, I've also heard conflicted opinions on, on the idea of making um, Election Day a, a federal holiday, too, in terms of public transportation and helping people That's get to fair. the polls. So trying That's to fair. include other measures in that bill that would then allow ways to get to the poll. Yeah, I, I mean, I... That's that's an excellent point. I think just being able to vote by the mail is probably the simplest solution right. to things. Cause Which is what Oregon does and yeah. Arizona, I think. Uh, there's a couple, a few states that do yeah. it. And it, I think Colorado has done has implemented it now. And it's 
and wonderful things are happening in Colorado uh-huh. now. So, so we've got these two bullet points. We've, we've now covered. Right. Uh, so, so here's here's the first. The one of I think is only two that don't immediately resonate with the now, and that is to own the land we till. But but, I, but, but we can translate that into right. modern. It's still language. absolutely relevant. It's just the like you said, the it's translating it to modern language. So there's not a lot of young uh, farmers anymore. Um, but uh, that being said, so we were talking about how it was making making things like owning the means of production right. or something like exactly exactly we we young people still and it's exactly like you said the gig economy uh, what further way of owning the means of production uh, than being sort of a slave to this uh, weirdly artificially constructed uh, market in say uh, car transport like th- that is an industry completely owned by the com- by two companies at this point yep right? uber and lyft uh, and they, uh, you, as much as they want to say, like, "Hey, you're a contract, you're a business person, you own your own." No, you don't. You are a a subject. Uh, you're a, basically mm-hmm. a serf on their land at that point. Their digital land. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you still have to pay for the insurance on your car. There, there's there's not a lot of. It's not owning your own business when you're not the one getting rich from it. But in addition to owning the means of production, I mean, to own the land you till and to have better homes. For your family, I mean, land ownership in itself is still a very yep. big issue, especially for communities of color. Mm-hmm. And, and the access to land ownership is incredibly difficult um, in this economy. And given the historical you know, redlining and, and zoning yep. laws that were so restrictive, and you know, loan issues and, and discrimination. I've read, on race. I've read some some things recently, um, or maybe I heard them on a podcast. Uh, likely Pod Save America or Pod Save the People, one of those two. So listen to it. I think it's Pod Save the People. And they talked about how even now a white person and a black person can have the same credit score and a white person is more like, or even the black person could have a better credit score. The white person is still more likely to get the loan than the person of color. There's absolutely still racial discrimination in our housing policies so yeah. I mean, and our banking. So there's definitely still a barrier. Um, and historically, it's going to take a lot of time to to even out the the wealth inequalities over oh, generations and because I think of we, that. I think we have to talk about restorative justice in, in that, that tone, which is sort of like reparations, but restorative justice is like giving advantage to people who've, been discriminated against over long periods of time that that could help them bridge some of the gaps and make people more equal. And to, yeah. to help try to counter the legacy of, <laughs> yeah. of discrimination. They yeah. I'm not an expert yet. on that, but I like I've been reading a lot about that lately, and that's what I'm thinking. The Color of Wealth is a great book in terms of learning about our discrimination in, in economics and housing and, and loan practices, mm-hmm. if anyone's looking for a great book. I'll link it below. Oh. I, I try to link all the books below when I, I, I'm... Add it to the notes. All right. So so we kind of touched on, we skipped over one there when we mentioned uh, homes for family. I think we, should, we, we kind of got that covered with what we mentioned. Um, adequate medical and hospital care. Um, so we, so we, let's talk about universal health care. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, universal health care is, is the goal, right? Uh, uh-huh. And uh, the, But I, I'd say this one we might have, even, in, even though I'm going to completely trash, especially the South Carolina's health care system in a moment, I think we could say that this is one that we've had um, some pretty good advances on and some unfortunate setbacks as well. Uh, but if you think about it, 
it was kind of a crapshoot whether or not you had health care coverage in 1946. Yeah. In 1946, my daddy was born at home in rural South Carolina. Yeah, and and the 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 positive cut of that is that. Uh, back then, uh, getting health care was not that expensive. So mm-hmm. uh, it was only then becoming, I think, health insurance was becoming something that we uh, was starting to become necessary. You could afford to pay. I mean, it was always probably necessary, but you could afford to pay a doctor. You wouldn't go broke if you got sick yeah. is, the, is the what I'm trying to get and, at. But the, you might die because, again. You, you, you might die because you, you just don't have the health care, yeah, right? My, my, and, and we didn't have medical advances that have gotten it. I had a grandfather who died, I think. Think of brain cancer in 1959. Again, my father's father, because but, they just didn't have anything to treat it with. And more recently, I would say one of the again one of the positive advances that we've made on this, and and I'm going to say this right before I dig into everything I dislike about the affordable health care uh, plan, uh, plan, is that it did extend the ability to remain on your parents' coverage until 27, I believe. 26. 26, mm-hmm. uh, and that really has helped a lot of people maintain their coverage uh, when probably when they need it most mm-hmm. uh, in terms of being not being able to have a, a job that would provide it. Um, so that said, uh, healthcare costs are the most, exp- we, we pay more in America than anywhere else in the world pays and we get like half the quality. I'm making mm-hmm. that ratio up, but it's uh, it's pretty close uh, to that. Uh, we They're out of control. Uh, drug costs are out of control. Uh, if you have, uh, you know, diabetes, uh, good luck because your insulin's $900 a month now. And, and there's store, stories all over the internet about that. And, right. you know, I worry to death about that because my sugar's higher than it needs to be now. I don't right. want to, I can't afford $1,000 a month for insulin. Right. Yeah. And, and in addition to, to that, the, uh, in South Carolina, we have, uh, because of the Affordable Health Care Act, the way it was structured, um, because we have to do things nice by the, by, uh, and respect the rights of the states for some reason <laughs> regarding something that is universally applicable as if South Carolinians have different biology than the people mm-hmm. next door. Uh, but we, uh, the states have uh, uh, the ability to veto... Uh, the accepting of money. You would have thought you would anyone would ever do that, but they have. Ref- in South Carolina is one of the I think eighteen. And states. it's our money. It's our money that we've already paid to the federal government, uh-huh. and we're just refusing to take it back because we're that we, we that proud, I guess. Uh, and and we have not funded the expansion of Medicaid that would have uh, eliminated the coverage gap created in mm-hmm. the affordable health care. So essentially, just to very quickly, uh, the you get a uh, sliding scale for insurance to the marketplace down to a certain amount. Below that, you should be eligible for Medicaid, unless your state uh, refused the funding, in which case you go down to whatever your state's threshold is. And for us, um, that leaves uh, what we're estimating to be about 300,000 people in that Medicaid gap. They're either paying full price or they don't have insurance or they don't have it at all. And I, I have friends who fall into that gap. And and uh, and so yeah, we have this uh, a further crisis in that very our hospitals in South Carolina are in crisis. So they're all merging into this weird con- corporate conglomerate. Uh, what's the? Does anybody know the name of the? Uh, it's the Palmetto Health is now like. Is it Prism? Prism. It's something yeah. crazy like that. Um, and um, I think the medical center bought Carolinas in Florence. Now. Uh, yeah, it's so they're, they're doing all, a lot of like. Uh, or the the medical university digital um, like um, telehealth uh, telehealth there telehealth. you go yeah uh-huh. 
And that's the solution is um, a, a guy in another, uh, maybe in another state, maybe in another country, uh, not to sound xenophobic, but someone not anywhere near you on a robot will tell you that you're dying. If that literally happened recently, uh-huh. not in South Carolina, but, um, and, and, and essentially the, uh, the hospitals lobbied, uh, hospitals are, uh, you know, I don't know if you've ever dealt with the billing department of a hospital, but they like money. And so they, they're not necessarily uh, do-gooders from the, for the sake of it. They need Even money. if they're nonprofit. Even if they're nonprofit, they have to have money to survive. And, and so they backed expanding Medicaid. They thought it was a good idea because they could actually treat people and get that tiny little Medicare copayment that would, after treating numerous patients, would actually make a difference on their balance sheets. And uh, the state has denied them that. And now the only way they can uh, accommodate this is to merge together into companies that are so large that they're having to have debates one time I've actually sat in on this on the legislature. They're debating whether or not, oh, this actually violates state antitrust laws. And yeah, like, and, and we, we, we can't forget that they're closing, too. And they're also, yes. They're, um, we've mentioned this before on the podcast about the one in Fairfield that closed a couple of months ago. It hasn't even been that long. Ba- I believe it's, is it Bamberg? Bamberg has, Bamberg, which is... Nikki Haley's hometown. Uh, shout out. Woo. Shout out. Woo-hoo. Um, They no longer have, because she refused Medicaid expansion, they no longer have providers in the county. Well, you see, if, if, if people will uh, be incentivized to work hard, perhaps they can, too, be appointed to the board of Boeing, um, which is currently fighting a unionization effort spearheaded now with the governor who said unions are never welcome. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe maybe you too can be governor and fight unions in the Boeing. I, I don't want to fight unions. I would totally allow unions, <laughs> and that is probably why I will never be this governor. Is, this is America. We could all in be South on the board Carolina. of Boeing. In South Carolina. I, I'll have to move somewhere else to be governor. Um, uh, but anyways, that, that's enough on, on uh, health care. I, mean, it's, it's, I think anybody who's had a medical bill in their life knows that something is wrong uh, yeah. with health care. What's some of the other things that we haven't talked about uh, so, yet? So, uh, better education for all. And uh, by uh, strange coincidence, uh, you're, we're talking to a number of members of the education committee. Oh, uh, it's so a coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we're going to get you some of the, uh, you'll, you'll hear all our voices again on a future episode uh, talking about education specifically. But in, in general, I guess we, could, we should mention that one of the things going on right now is a, is a big debate in the legislature about how we're going to fund our state education. It's largely been neglected and has, has historically been neglected. Yeah, and teachers are pushing for raises, and they haven't had a raise probably since 2010 or so. I, it, I don't it's know. been a long time, and the, the, basically their wages have uh, with stagnated. They're, they're, not only, they're not only flat, they're down when you account yeah. for inflation. And, so. and we had a guest from the SEA who came on Tuesday to the Progressive Network meeting. One of the things she said is that South Carolina, all our colleges of education are not graduating enough students to feel, fill the gap that is left by retiring teachers and teachers who are leaving the profession because it's not, they can't support a family on that salary. We, South Carolina has problems. And again, we also have problems with how we fund it because people in more uh, affluent areas essentially get a better education than people in less affluent areas. I grew up in rural South Carolina, and I'm going to tell this story, and then I'm going to let Kurt talk because I know he (laughs) wants to tell things. Um, But a few years ago, I read in the paper that one of our neighboring school districts, Timmonsville, was firing all of their electives teachers because they had a $200,000 shortfall. 
Whereas I was sitting in Richland County and they were talking about building a $14 million football stadium or high school football. And I was just so livid, so livid when I read that in the paper. I literally threw it across the room. That's such a hilarious microcosm because we're literally now the teachers are fighting to get an adequate pay raise. And all the headlines this week have been, the Carolina Panthers might come to South Carolina. Like that's all Governor McMaster wants to talk about is Uh the football team uh, might move uh, 20, 30 minutes miles south uh so i mean cool sure (laughs) um but that is that is not what matters what we we want is a fully funded education system and the bill that they put forth recently and that they're debating we will have more information on that on a forthcoming episode we do not feel qualified to talk at this time but one of the things that they are doing is they have unfunded mandates that they they say that we all know will never be funded because this is South Carolina. You want a bill, when you have a bill, you want to have a source of funding attached to the things that are required, and and this bill doesn't have that. Add it to the deficit. Isn't that isn't that what we do now? I mean, that's well, what in, the president in South, does. In South Carolina, we have a had a, a overflow last year where we could have, in fact, funded education fully at least one year. And and we'll get into some of the specific cases and the history of it, but basically that's what South Carolina has kind of always done. I mean, we... Uh, we set up our our public uh, health uh, healthcare our public education system shortly after uh, reconst or during Reconstruction, and uh, it's constitutionally mandated uh, that we have a I believe the, the term that everyone knows is a minimally adequate education for all members of South Carolina, and that became a buzzword due to a case um, in which it was basically ruled by the state supreme court that South Carolina failed to provide that minimally adequate education to all of its citizens due to inequality of the funding this was of the schools. Google the corridor of shame, y'all. Yeah, it, the, 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 the famous documentary, still their website is still up with the inf- the basic information about it. Uh-huh. Uh, I think it's corridorofshame.com or something yeah, like that. Yeah, and I, I grew up adjacent to that corridor of shame. And, and, and essentially what has happened is that uh, the Supreme Court said, yeah, you're right, They you need to fund it. And um, what happened was years went by and they didn't fund it and years went by and they didn't fund it. And then years went by and terms on the state Supreme Court went up and they restacked the court. And then the court said, oh, no, that decision doesn't matter anymore. You're fine. Uh And so nothing ever changed. They just changed the interpretation of the law so that they didn't have to change anything. And there there is so much going on about that that I really do think that needs its own podcast as well. (laughs) But I can tell you that... Even when I was growing up in my school district, and they managed to get a property tax through, so this has stopped happening. But I went to school in a building where there was mold on the ceiling. You could see that it was molding. And that the, the building was older than, like, my parents. And that's that's not okay, guys. That's that's so not okay. Children, again, get, that's how you get sick children. And uh, I think that's a, a good time we, <laughs> to move on to... Uh, Protection from mob violence and police brutality. Now, before we started recording, we we had a question of whether we wanted to talk about the. There's a couple of police shooting or not police shootings. I'm sorry, mass shootings that have taken place not in 
even in the United States, but one in uh, just very recently in New Zealand, in, in New Zealand at a mosque, and then a, a shooting at a school in Brazil mm-hmm. uh, earlier we're, last we're year. We're exporting our problems, y'all. Right. right. And, and, uh-huh. it's incredibly tragic, and so we're obviously thinking a lot about what's going on in those other countries and, and the victims of those crimes and, and massacres that have been happening. And so it's definitely something that our country really cannot stop ignoring when we think about how our country is, claims itself on being a, a model for the world, a leader of the world. Is this what we want to be leading? Or what are we going to do to address it? And, and it really is, you know, a global issue that needs to be addressed. And when I think of youth, I mean, the only thing I can I, I can think of, when it, protection from mob violence and police brutality. Now, I mean, I think enough has been said by the the nationwide Black Lives Matter movement about what it's like to be young and black. Uh, but all I can think about is Spring Valley High School, 2016, the police officer ripping the, uh, the child out of her And I think of Dylan Roof. And, 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 mm-hmm. and that as well. I mean, it, Because he would, man, he's like a manifest of single person mob violence that these yeah. people were facing I, yeah, way the, back then. The too. only word you need we needs to be changed in this is less mob and more. It, it is now, thanks to technology, it is perfectly capable to be a mob of your own. Uh-huh. <laughs> you, you, all you need is yeah. uh, access to some equipment you can buy at a sporting goods store and uh, you can cause massive chaos. Yeah. And Chris, I believe Spring Valley is your alma mater. That's correct. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh-huh. yeah, uh, I used to work across the street from it. And, yeah, that's, uh, that's the school district I, I live school, in. What city is it not in? Uh, that's here in Columbia. Columbia. Oh, it's here. in Columbia. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah it's, it's right up in the northeast near me. If I, I had children, they would go to school there. But, uh, yeah, it, it's it, to be, as we mentioned those statistics uh, earlier with what it's like to be young and black, I mean, it's all just people under 30. I mean, the the, mm-hmm. the targets are essentially young black males are the ones that are mostly victimized by our criminal justice department. And, and, and young we, black women are, are, are really affected heavily within, disciplinarily in the school system. Yeah, and you, we have, um, we, we get a lot of these statistics from SLED. So if you wanted to look up the statistics on your own you can find those pretty easily on the sled website yeah i mean i was so i was at in dc this past week and uh, went to the african-american history museum which is free you just have to wake up at 6 a.m to log on to your phone to get tickets i highly recommend going i still want to (laughs) go but i so walking through the museum you can really watch the mob violence um, you can watch the history through from the bottom floor up to the up to the top of the floor as you go through history you see the images of police brutality of you know white supremacist you know, terrorism and of course you know the atrocities during slavery and you, you watch that all the way through and when you get to the end you also see the same things happening today and you see the black ferguson. lives matter movement you see ferguson you see um, police Brutality. You see violence, and you see white supremacist terrorist organizations and hate crimes today. And so you really don't need to look beyond that. I mean, I, I, it's not even worth. T- <laughs> yeah, there's we- no question that this is happening, um, and and that it. I don't know. I don't know how to say if it's better or worse than it was in the 40s. It's definitely still there. I I don't think there is a better or worse. I think that it's. It's the same. I don't think that we've we've really improved all that much. I think things are a little more transparent, but unfortunately that transparency hasn't translated into the situation getting much better. And and, and in fact, I would I would argue that it has um, emboldened 
uh, people to I be even word. more blatantly white supremacists. You can make a career out of it, especially if you retire your bow tie and start becoming an overt white nationalist when you take over the number one show on Fox News. Yeah, so. but I also think that people don't view protests today like they do when they look at the civil rights movement. And I think that that's sort of mm-hmm. a doing a disservice to the movement when you look at the protests. That was something I thought was interesting in the museum was that they had a wall that was projecting images of Black Lives Matter protesters, and then they were throwing it back to civil rights protesters mm-hmm. and the Selma Pro, um, Bridge uh, March. And if you had made those pictures black and white, you wouldn't have known that some were taking place today because it really is the same you know, march protests that are going on for, for civil rights. And so when, but when we view it in today, the way that the media portrays it and the way that I think they're just living in the moment, we don't see the, the we don't see it in that same historical context. I think I agree. Uh, people don't really, I don't know how to, to phrase that really, but aren't, aren't viewing it with the same weight that it deserves. And, and I think, I mean, ultimately what we're finding out is that the issues of what it is to be young is the same, or essentially the same as what it is uh, to be old as well, but maybe with the volume turned up a little bit. It's, yeah. it's a little bit harder to be young when you don't have access to wealth or perhaps you're less likely to be enfranchised in the voting mm-hmm. scenario uh, or the, with your voting rights. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's let's move on to the last one because I think uh, this is we can make an interesting connection to Janessa's uh, at hero, her admired woman earlier is a guarantee of a peaceful world, the continuation of, and this is where we're going to like translate this, but Roosevelt's policy of collaboration with our wartime allies. Climate change too. Uh, well, climate, yeah. So yeah, if we want a peaceful world, we actually do. I'm glad you inserted that in there because <laughs> it's not, it's not at all where I was going, yeah. but it needs to be mentioned that when we talk about, um, all the refugee crises that are going on that yep. are fueling a lot of the sort of xenophobic build the wall, keep them out, all this rhetoric. A lot of this has to do with climate change. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we want to talk about Ilan Omar, one of the collapses of the uh, cause, reasons that Saudi Arabia, uh, Saudi Arabia, I can't talk Palestine, today, Somalia, Somalia, where Ilan yeah. Omar is from, has had such a rough go of it is uh, uh, in addition to being invaded and uh, being manipulated from foreign powers is that the fishing industry has completely been um, decimated decimated due mm-hmm. to not only a po- it, it could be and it maybe maybe decimated is the wrong word. I, I sometimes but they've been, they've been overfished from but, out from without. Uh, other yeah. people came in fished. That's the cause of the Somali pirate. Uh-huh. Like phenomenon is that these are fisher out of work fishermen who have no more fish to bring out of the ocean. Um, the, but climate change is fueling the uh, some of the wars. The war in Syria was was yep. influenced by that. All of this stuff, people moving. The is, reason people are coming up from Guatemala and some of those places is also related to. And, climate change. And, and and it's only the climate change is only gonna make that worse. But the acute thing that was of course causing all of that is uh foreign pol is, is wars and specifically US foreign policy mm-hmm. that is enabling or sometimes the direct, you know, command of that causing some of these wars. I mean the war in Yemen that's going on right now is absolutely atrocious. And maybe that's why I Saudi Arabia was thinking forward to Yemen. But uh, this is a war where uh, essentially it's a proxy war. Saudi Arabia is fighting with Iran. Um, the United States is still mad of over conflict with Iran that we had in the late 70s. And so they will back anybody that is against Iran. And uh, essentially... Our forces are, or continue, I believe, to pl- to arm and to mm-hmm. fuel the jets uh, that the Saudi Arabians use to just decimate 
uh, Yemen, and also there's now hundreds of thousands of people probably with cholera because the humanitarian aid yeah. workers can't get in. Is that how you pronounce that? Uh, cholera? Yeah, I've always pronounced can, it can, cholera. I think you can say it cholera, cholera or cholera. I, okay. You, you are more likely to be a cholera. Are you laughing at me because I'm saying it wrong? No, I don't know. I say it cholera. Cholera, yeah. yeah. I, I, think, I think you're right. I'm wrong on this one. Yeah, cholera. I just... I, this I, is a very important point. It's important yeah. point. <laughs> I'm is, sorry. I get sidetracked by things it, like it, words. It is... No... It, Based on everything that uh, some of the young women in Congress have had to deal with, I'm, I'm going to be the, the male AOC in this moment. Let the women correct me and talk down to me for a moment. Because <laughs> that's what we're doing to her constantly. Oh, you said a word wrong. You're so dumb. You should stick to bartending. No, but AOC, you rule. But, yeah, I mean, obviously the one that – our policy in Israel, which is a very hot issue, and, and it, it, the re, it makes – it seems crazy sometimes, like how – we seem more loyal to Israel at times than we are to our own people in a way. Yeah. Important to connect it back to South Carolina. We have a very, uh, APAC has, which is specifically the entity that uh, uh, Representative Omar was, was criticizing, has a huge foothold in South Carolina. And uh, there is, they, are a, they are a lobbying group. Controversially, they use money to influence politicians, be it, be it legally or not. Uh, and I'm not a accusing them of doing it illegally uh, because our system is wide open and you can do it legally and it's still corrupt. Yep. But uh, yeah, essentially the, a, a number of our congressmen are very close with APAC and you can, I think there's a legitimate conversation to say like, is that something that is a good thing? I mean, is it, it if we had a huge lobbying firm that represented, I don't know, say Russia, for example, I think a lot of people are very weirded out by the president's strange relationship that's probably tied to his businesses to that. I mean, I don't want to yeah. go on a Russiagate right. tangent because I'm actually kind of a skeptic of some of that yeah, stuff. Yeah, same. But but that being said, like p that makes people uncomfortable. Why is it? Why is it so? Our, our, it's because our, our our interests are aligned in in the Israeli project. Mm -hmm. So yeah, and it's important to remember this this particular quote of the Pact of the Southern Youth talks about allyship with our. Um, so allyship, or working alongside people yeah. in other countries. And, and when we think about Israel, I think it's really important, especially when we have these nuanced conversations, just mm -hmm. as we're nuanced in our conversations of U.S. politics, to remember that Israel has many political parties, and that Absolutely. the Netanyahu yeah. government is, is quite right-ring and very disliked among a lot of people in Israel as well, uh -huh. and but is currently facing indictment, um, and that there are yeah. you know Israelis um, that, that need allyship as well in the fight against oppression of the Palestinians, just as we need to be, you know, allies with the Palestinians in their, um, in their quest for, yeah. for justice and equality as well. And so it, it's important to, to think about when we talk about collaboration with allies around the world yeah, for agree. peace, that, that we need to identify those groups and, I mean, and make that part of the struggle. I, and that's an important point to reiterate because I always sort of take that as a granted that people assume that I think that way as well. Because generally, uh, like I'm not cr critical of every single Israeli. Uh, obviously, the, the Likud party unfortunately has had a hegemony on the on the uh, the, the government there for what since the 1992, 93 something after the, like that uh, after the assassination on um, it's it's Rabin. But they've essentially took over after that, and they've been at the top since. But the uh, I think maybe with one or two quick quick uh, forays into the minority, but they uh, it's, uh, the same thing is applicable to South Carolina, and that's something that we stated in our very first episode. Is if you live outside of the South and you think, boy, there's all this terrible stuff that happens in South Carolina, that shouldn't and hopefully doesn't translate to 
oh, well, all South Carolinians suck. Well, like, well, if we're, we're a racist red state. Well, it's like, well, 30% of us are black. I mean, I, I, I'm not, but I, but yeah. I also represent uh, a, a portion of the of the white block that is also not supportive of any of these policies that we're generally associated with. Yeah, so. and I think we're representative of a lot of the younger folks in South Carolina, too. But, you know, not all, sadly. <laughs> Well, but, we, we've been going on quite a while. Yeah, we, we, this, we, so we've got say. an hour and four minutes of content so, so far. So, but we, we, what else can we, how can we wrap it well, up? Maybe we could bring it back to, we've just talked a lot about a, a lot of our ailments and frustrations yeah. and thoughts and, and, and talking about how frustrated we are as youth living in South Carolina. Um, and so I want to talk about what we want to do with that because this has been a, a lot of complaining about those issues and we really want to figure out we all can sit around in our in our living rooms with our friends at restaurants and talk about these things that we're frustrated with in our communities. And what we're trying to do in the New Legacy Project is zero in on what's really happening, figure out why these things are happening in our state, we'll kind of put some some interviews, do some interviews and some survey analysis, do some compile the data and figure out let's put this into a format that we can actually bring it up and make changes yep. about it in our government and, right. and not just, you know, stay here like, in this conversation. I, <laughs> I think I think we've got some some my basic ideas of what I think that the the data is gonna support. This is a hypothesis. You might prove your hypothesis wrong, but I think that changing the way we fund education would be uh, really beneficial, like ha- taking it away from like just locally funded and expanding that out so that the funding is more equalized, but again, that's yeah. that's just a hypothesis. I, and I think that, that just to, that from the, always from the beginning of this project was the idea that like once we've compiled all the you know the 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 list of the ills is to uh, to translate that or to invert that into a pol- into policies for what's going to solve those. Uh, mm-hmm. So the goal is to you know hopefully soon we'll have our own you know pact of the Southern Youth. That is sort of the inverted document yeah. uh, that we're creating now, and um, and and we'll translate that into actual. Policy. And we we want your narrative stories too. We want you to tell us what it's like for you that's a, that's as a, a young person in South Carolina. That's a good point, and I think we should open up the uh, the old inbox again. Um, uh-huh. Reach out to us on our uh, on our social media. Um, uh, which we will add to the notes. They, they've been in there every day. We have a, a email address that you can email us. We have a Twitter and we have Instagram. And we want to hear your narrative stories. And if you don't want to write something... Just uh, record it. Record it, yeah. Record it on your phone and send it to us. We'll, we might include them in the podcast. Absolutely. We would adore that. Uh, please please uh-huh. send us your narrative. Um, we'd love to talk about it. Um, so, yeah, you were talking about, like creating our own pact of the southern youth absolutely that that's that's something we want to do we want we want to be like our our grandparents here our 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 grandparent social activists from 1946 and make a difference in south carolina they they as much as we sit here and we talk about how things haven't changed as much things have changed we have i won't say universal suffrage because we still struggle with that but more people can vote are qualified to vote now than there were in 1946 and yet there's there's still were you know barely uh if i have to look at the numbers again but barely a majority of the voting age population still participates and whether or not that's we talked about some of that in the last episode 
You should yeah. go back and listen. <laughs> I'm almost caught up. Yeah, on, yeah. On all the episodes that yeah. I'm not on. <laughs> no. So, but but we also have come a long way in home ownership and things like that. Though, as we stated earlier, there is still a long way to go. But we've fallen back in a lot of ways because we're not guaranteed good-paying jobs that allows us to afford families and. And things like that, too. And, and so Perhaps this can be a wake-up call, because I think for a lot of us, we, you know, I, since I was a kid, and it's instilled in every history textbook. Have you ever read the last chapter in your elementary school history textbook? Yes, I raised my hand. It's all garbage, because it'll, like, it'll be like, okay, you know, well, now that you learned all the facts, you realize that America's really a melting pot, and everything's uh, coming up millhouse, and uh-huh. uh, progress marches on forward, and everything's going to get gradually better until uh, utopia. And so it never ends on any, like, well, where are we at now? It, it instills this idea of, uh, this mythical idea of linear progress. Mm-hmm. Like, progress well, isn't guaranteed. I, well, the arch of, arc of justice bends towards the righteous or something like that. Or the arc of history bends towards justice. But it, that quote is used out of context all the time. But it doesn't talk about the people who are out there pushing and bending that arc towards justice. And, and was, I, I think... And it was probably... And I hate to say I don't know who... who it was Martin uh, Luther King. It was Martin Luther King. Yeah. Someone who... Uh, I'm not coming down hard on Dr. King for... <laughs> but, uh-huh. but someone who is in the wave of mid-century, 20th century American progress, uh-huh. um, which I think we're now... We could officially say we're a little removed from... And not someone from, hey, I don't know, let's say the Dark Ages, which uh, 300 years of not so much progress. You can critique whether the Dark Ages is a good historical idea. There still was culture happening for that time period. But essentially, there are periods of time where things get bad for a while before they get better mm-hmm. again. And, yeah. and and there's always going to be people out there pushing that, yeah. that are bending it towards justice. We must remain vigilant to get that yes. justice. Um, so I, I personally am glad to be in company of at least three right now people who are doing that active work and I'm grateful for y'all um so now we're going to to just sort of close it up now um let's talk about one of the things we want from you we want your feedback on this tell us what you think about what you just heard we also want your stories send them to our email address which is South Carolina SC New Legacy Project at gmail.com and our Twitter account, which is SC underscore New Legacy on Twitter and Instagram. Um, and our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash SCNLP. You, you can find us there. Tell us your stories. Tell us what your experiences at are as a, a, a youth in South Carolina, um, or a young person, and tell us if you if we've completely left something if if the Southern Negro Youth Congress completely left something out, um, an, a topic that maybe we didn't even think about that mm-hmm. it is very important to youth. Yeah, and I, I think one of the things they left out is probably one they weren't facing, which is gun violence in schools. That, uh, but I mean, I think that's covered by uh, mob violence. violence and brutality. Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean it. Maybe it was the Klan then, and mm-hmm. now it's this the solo shooter, you know, yeah. the Dylan Roof. Chris, you got anything you want to add? Well, I guess we, we talked about it earlier, but yeah, I think environmental crises are a little more, you know, something else that we can kind of incorporate into um, today's concerns. Yes, yeah. the state of the youth is not stagnant. The state of the youth continually changes and moves with us, and what we're we're covering today may not be everything we cover we may add some additional topics 
as we get through this, but we figured five topics were probably a good place to start. Janessa, you got anything you want to close up with? She shakes her head. <laughs> I think we've covered pretty much everything so far, so I'm excited to see uh, where the project takes us in presenting our our new updated pack to the Southern Youth in a future episode. Yeah, that I think that we can close out now. Thank you for joining us on the South Carolina New Legacy podcast, and that'll that'll be it for today. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Welcome back to the South Carolina New Legacy podcast. I'm here with Kurt, and we're going to talk a little bit about the Majeska School, and then he's going to tell us the story about what he learned at the Majeska School. Right, so that's that's always what's been asked is, like, what's my testimonial? And I have since, I have, it's been a, a year since I went, and I have never given a testimonial, even though I thoroughly endorse it. And it's because my legitimate testimonial is uh, long and weird. But okay. I'm going to give it to you now after we talk about okay. it. Okay, so, so let's talk about what the Majeska School is. We've talked about the Majeska School a little in the past, but its full name, I think, is the Majeska School for Human Rights. That's, that's correct. And um, it is uh, four or five years old now. Um, it's, we're doing our fourth semester of it. We had, a, a, we had to take a little bit of a break. Um, it was an election year last year, y'all. Yeah. And, and when our planned, we got a little busy in the fall. Instead of doing a, a curriculum, we 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 indeed we, we registered voters. We we tried to get figure out a way to get Medicare and secure the uh, proper redistricting, and uh, you know we're gonna get we're gonna get some of that. So yeah. Uh, but the battle rages on. Uh, so the Majeska School is uh, obviously it's named after uh, Majeska Simpkins, who's sort of our, our, our spiritual godmother uh, of, of the organization of South, the South Carolina Progressive Network. We, we, we learn from her example. And uh, it's a, uh, a school to teach South Carolina history. Uh, from but the from, the, from the people's standpoint, it's right. a, so the like truth. A Zen-style uh, mm-hmm. take on history, uh, as well as uh, organizing tactics. Uh, and, and, and really, I would say the underrated part is, uh, because uh, unfortunately we can do, be clunky at this sometimes, is it really does explain the network strategy pretty well. So if you, mm-hmm. I think it's it's very easy way if you want to work with the network, a good a good way to start is to do the Majeska School. Uh, but it's not mandatory. If you want, if you have a job and you want to go back to doing that job and understanding uh, a little bit about community organizing and understanding a, a, a deeper, more authentic mm-hmm. view of what happened in the in the state's history, it is perfectly a good. Uh, good supplement to that yeah and and we have people of varying ages attending as well um it's not just people kurt my age we have older people and younger people and it is this year we have a 13 year old a friend of mine is going to be attending awesome and i'm excited about that for him because i learned so much last year when i was in the Majeska School. So why don't we just let Kurt start telling his story? Okay. And so, I'm going to try to be quiet, and not interrupt. Well, well I'm going to. I want to tell say one more thing about the school before uh-huh. I get into it, and that is just to give you a, a concept. It, it is like a, a very broad uh, chronological history of of South Carolina too. So it starts. To, uh, we're talking about the native peoples uh, here. So instead of starting, oh, America started. No, we we go back further than that. We go back to what. Uh, uh, the life was like in here well before the white people showed up, yeah. um, but then we and we go through through that through colonization um, through the the legacy of, of slavery unfortunately and then and how the politics of the state have evolved and where and how we got to where we are and, today. and we have so. a lot of good speakers come in and give talks on their levels of expertise and it I 
developed a history crush on Dr. Donaldson last year. Uh, the man's a good lecturer. Because I <laughs> would want to, I want to go to all his classes and just sit there and listen to him talk. And that, He's and that, quite good. And that's Dr. Bobby Donaldson of the uh, University of South Carolina. What, what is the civil rights Center for Civil Rights? Center for Civil Rights. Yeah, he has his own little uh, little niche in the university, and he's very good at what he does. And they just they just opened a museum in the um, in the library, and I think it's still going on. Um, that has some of the memorabilia that he's collected and, and, over the years and I will of say, civil rights history. Having worked next to uh, one, their, uh, one of his satellite offices, they have some beautiful photographs. So if nothing else is worth seeing history uh, in photography. Mm -hmm. But uh, so here's the question. we I've been to numerous network events, uh, and I've often been asked, uh, will you give a testimonial? And I'm usually the one who's willing to give it. Right. My, mine is simply that, it made me really angry, and it motivated me to get more involved and, and do things. Mine doesn't have as the succinct pitch as that one, so that's why I yeah. have and will continue for going forward to let you give that pitch. <laughs> um, so this is going to be 80% uh, uh, Gonzo, Kurt, subconscious rambling, so I apologize, but I'm going to give the honest answer. So, okay, so people Kurt... Tell me your what, why, your testimonial from the Majeska School. I guess the way it's usually is, what did I learn in the Majeska School, uh -uh. right? And yeah. so, uh, so I, first off, autobiographical fact: I'm really bad at determining where I learned something. Um, so, in an earlier recording session, you joked, you know, I don't know if I read it or heard it in a podcast. That is me uh, times a thousand. I don't mm -hmm. know where I absorb information from. I know I got it from somewhere. I didn't come up with it myself. But uh, in general, I, f I can't tell if I read it somewhere or if I heard it. So, if you ask me specifically what specific facts I learned, I could probably point to a few about the Native American history that I did not know of. But that is it. Uh, I, there's a lot of stuff about. Um, slavery, Reconstruction, and the early 20th century that I undoubtedly learned there, but I also knew a good chunk about well, that. Well, I can tell you some things I didn't learn. I, I didn't learn about the the, the honeypath strikes yeah, that you, killed people. That that one always that came out of nowhere for me. Right. I didn't realize we had a union past in South Carolina. And and so a lot of a lot of this stuff, um, you know, like I'm sure I learned a good chunk of it there. And I don't say that like dismissively. Like I know I did. I just can't tell you what what it's specific yeah. it was. Kurt, Kurt Kurt and I love to talk about history together right. and um I have to frequently remind him where he got it from. So, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so, but I can tell you uh, an ex a mental experience I had. Okay. A, 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 a cracking of, a, 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 a mental dawning, a, a cracking of the cosmic egg. I don't even know if that's a, a proper a use of that term. But, uh, but I'm going to have to backtrack a little bit and tell you about a guy named Philip K. Dick. I have heard of him. Okay, so are you, have you read any of his books? Before? I have not, but didn't he have some that were the Twilight Zone episodes were based on? No, um, he uh, he was really not adapted into. He was writing probably during and after the Twilight Zone was on the air. Ah, gotcha. But he uh, he, he was his first adaptation was Blade Runner. Okay. So, uh, so that's where I'd heard his name from. Right. Clearly. And so, and then in the nineteen late eighties, early nineties. Uh, I'd say through the 90s, uh, Hollywood kind of became obsessed with adapting him. So uh, Blade Runner, uh, Total Recall, oh, I've Minority seen that Report. I've seen all of those. Um, uh, and then the, one of the purest adaptations of his work, because a lot of these are, are loose adaptations, um, the, the book, oh, darn it, I just blanked on it, A Scanner Darkly. A Scanner Darkly is a direct adaptation uh, of mm -hmm. one of his early novels. 
and so Philip K. Dick was uh, sort of a countercultural um, California, I think Southern California writer during the the sixties. Um, he was heavily into drugs. Uh, the, uh, I can tell that from his those movies, right? And some of the themes of of his uh, of his books are you know the questioning of reality, what is you know questioning of identity. You know, there's a mm-hmm. one uh, one whole book that's about a guy who who is like a rock star who takes a drug that when he takes it he wakes up and he's a completely in a different universe or something where he doesn't mm-hmm. exist and nobody knows so he's a different person. Um, they're, they're all mind-bendy, sort of weird, uh, mm-hmm. uh, con- conceptual books mm-hmm. um, cranked out while he was literally, like, really... He was taking some psychedelic <coughs> drugs, but really his his love was, was amphetamines. And uh-huh. so he was... So meth. Yeah, pre-meth. Pre-meth. We're talking just direct amphetamines. Uh-huh. Uh, and so he was taking a lot of them. He was selling them. And he was very paranoid that the police were after him um, because he was taking a lot of amphetamines and it was kind of a vicious cycle. They probably were and he was out of his mind. Mm-hmm. But he was also brilliant. And um, here's the thing that happens to brilliant people when they go a little crazy um, is that when a normal person's crazy, it's kind of boring. It's just like, I'm also Jesus or something, right? And you're like, well, how, how does that make sense? A brilliant person is faced with those contradictions and rationalizes them. And so one of the things that inspired a lot of Philip K. Dick's work is a, a religious experience that he had, a religious or, or, spiritual. or, or spiritual or philosophical experience that he had um, allegedly not under the influence of drugs, although I think he says at one point, he's like, maybe a little hashish, but not anything really powerful. <laughs> uh, but he, uh, so he was sitting at home, and it, at one point he looked at, I, I can't remember if it was his wife, or, but he looked at a, pe- a piece of jewelry on someone, and it was shiny, and it like caught his attention, and he kind of got like absorbed in it for a moment. And, and then when he could, you know, the glare of it wore down, he saw that it was a fish. And, uh, and, and then he suddenly felt himself transported and realized that, the, uh, according to the way he described it, that the reality that we live in is not, is not real. And that is a, a hallucination. This is sort of like a Gnostic experience that he had. And the fish reminded him, allegedly, that he was in fact an act. He, he didn't believe he was Jesus. He believed he was one of Jesus' early followers. And that he was in the company of Jesus and that he... Uh, that unfortunately, uh, the world as we saw it is a mask of illusion, and that the Roman Empire is still running the world. Mm-hmm. This is very elaborate. It involves uh, it goes into a lot of depth. He wrote an entire massive collection that's only recently been published called "My My Exegesis" or "Exegesis." I don't know how you say the word. Where he was basically trying to work through this crazy experience, and allegedly he had it multiple times. He would flash back mm-hmm. to this his past or current life living as a, 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 a early Christian faced with the Roman Empire and being oppressed by them and him try, and him trying to reconcile what the truth of reality is. And so the way his reality got, ended up getting constructed was that he believed, and he embedded some of these ideas in his novels. I see where you're novels. going with this, I bet. He believed that, like, that the Roman Empire was still real and that the latest Roman emperor was Richard Nixon and that like he was still in charge and it was just this suppressed reality that we lived in um, that made us Very think that matrix-y. we were... Right, right, right. And uh-huh. so, and he'd, he'd accidentally pierced through it. Uh, and that and that time, that was the, thing, the, the other component, the component of it is that time 
uh, had been become this myth that, we, that time had stopped. And that when we killed Jesus, time stopped, and it, and and we were trying to figure out how to work past that. But right now, the bad guys won, and mm-hmm. uh, it's almost kind of like if you've ever read the comics of Wanted. Mm-hmm. Uh, the movie's garbage. I'm sorry, but the the comic, the idea is that a villains, all the villains win. They kill all the superheroes, mm-hmm. and everyone, and then they make the world forget that they existed. Uh, another <laughs> crazy sci-fi digression. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyways, uh, so what does this have to do with the Majeska School, which is a school named after a you know, local uh, human rights hero founded by an old hippie that runs a, a progressive nonprofit, nonpartisan nonprofit? Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, so my experience learning about the history of South Carolina, uh, it, it made me realize uh, essentially the same thing that Philip K. Dick uh, hallucinated or, or, or whatnot, is that in a, in a way... I always thought um, I'm gonna back up one more second, and then we're gonna get to the to the damn point. I always thought when I was growing up um, how heroic the civil rights movement was. I always looked up to it. I thought this is amazing. I hope that someday I can be a part of something that meaningful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, for a long time, uh, I thought like, you know, oh, it kind of sucks that there's not something uh, that I can participate in to that magnitude now. Growing up in the 90s, it was all like, hey, let's... We're, we're post-racial. We're post-racial. We're, we're all listening Same. to Jamiroquai and going to complaining about how Woodstock 99 was expensive. And, you know, like, and so the, the idea that there was this... Ma- need for radical change had, is, was dead in the 90s. I mean, yep. unless you were an anarchist in Seattle or something like that, uh, you, nobody nobody was thinking like this. So uh, cut to uh, 2016, and I'm like, okay, I got to get involved because the world's on fire. And, Same. And, uh, and I'm only now realizing it, whereas like everyone around me is like, duh, Kurt, we've all known the world's been on fire, and you just had your head in the sand. And, and I'm like, yeah, okay. So... I'm I'm going through the Majeska School program and I'm learning all these individual facts and what what I take from it is not the individual facts. That's why I was sort of knocking them earlier is because what came out of it was a mental framework that oh my god we've been taught wrong the his, history is a lie time stopped mm-hmm. the bad guys won and they tricked us. They tricked us into thinking that they lost. And essentially, I mean, that's a little bit glib, but the fact of the matter is, is that after the Civil War, the bad guys were were defeated for a few years, and then... Uh, the rede- like you said, the redemption happened. The same people, and who- it's not really a redemption. Yeah, that's that's what they called it. The redeemers called it, uh-huh. but essentially, um, it was the same system of racialized and class oppression was carried on through other means. Instead, mm-hmm. it was no longer chattel slavery didn't exist, but we moved to a system where maybe penalized slavery still exists and we can just lock up the the people that looked just like the slaves did and force them to work right uh then we okay well we can't we can't keep doing we can't deny these people the right to vote anymore the law has changed that but we can gerrymander them out of power Exactly, or or we can we can change the tone of politics so that, uh, as Lee Atwater famously said, we're not out there screaming the N word. We're saying forced busing, and so and and things like welfare queen. And r- exactly, it's it's coded language. And so what I got out of the Majeska School was not any individual fact, but what I got was a framework that I have continued to carry with me. 
Um, that is that uh, we never saw the end of this. We just saw it change its shape. And unfortunately, until we get to the radical roots uh, of what we need to change in society, which, uh, for, you know, for, for me is probably going to involve something looking a lot like the dirty socialist word, um, that we have to talk about that. And if, if I came to it literally not because I wanted the free stuff that people like to say. I came from it from a racial justice background. I, I finally had a realization that I don't think we can have racial justice without settling the class issue because the because the racial issue historically exists as a way to obfuscate from the class issue. Mm -hmm. Poor white people have more in common with poor black people than they do with rich white people. Yep, I mean, we've discussed this before, and we too. and we have, and I don't, yeah. I, yeah, and I. But and that being said, I realize it's like all of this is an illusion, and I'm think I'm feeling like Philip K. Dick now, and yeah. I feel like I'm paranoid, and the police are gonna come and get me, and now. <laughs> and, and this is why he won't tell you your his last name. That is right. Uh -huh. <laughs> And it, I, I know you can find me, but you're going to have to do your homework is what I keep saying. So yeah. that's that's what I learned. That's what I took away from the Majeska School is I had – I uh, uh, and I, I, I don't want to think that I'm also party with Jesus or anything like that. I just want to say that I think that my – my recognition of the way history worked just uh, I had a, a it twisted a, a, yeah a, con a, com a conceptual shift we'll say yeah it wasn't an individual fact I learned my con my concept of the way the world was formed shifted ra so radically and almost suddenly it, it it hit me like a bolt of lightning one day and, I, and I, it's been stuck with me ever since I and I, I talk all the time about how angry I was mine was also sort of a conceptual shift because I knew none of this stuff and that's one of the things that made me angry is that I had gone through eighth grade South Carolina history and third grade South Carolina history and I'd never heard the name Majeska Simpkins I'd yeah. never heard about the Honey of Path um, strikes. I'd never heard of Robert Smalls and all those individual pieces right. that we learned that, that you're not talking about. I had never heard those, not once. Yeah. And so for me, I was angry that I had not been taught, but also glad to stand on the shoulders of people who came before me who were fighting for justice and truth and all of those things. Whereas, you know, it wasn't quite as conceptual as yours, but it was, yeah, it was and similar. I, and I don't mean that my, mine is, is any way different. I mean, I think the difference between you and me is that uh, this is actually a, a, a way easier way to answer the question. Um, I was looking at, a, um, at the dots, and I couldn't collect the lines. Uh -huh. You just hadn't seen the dots yet. Yeah, uh, exactly. Once you saw the dots, the lines built on, I was staring at the dots and not seeing the, the connectivity of them uh -huh. uh, until just then. And, and and uh, and you know and this was this has been a, a slow process, but it, it crystallized like a like a moment of, of zen, you know, uh -huh. uh, for me. And it happened in the Majeska School while I was doing the reading, while I was listening to the lectures. I don't know the exact day it happened, but it, it I know that there was a moment where it clicked, uh -huh. and I think it was while I was home doing the reading uh, yeah. before class. So I think I think this is a good place to close I, off. I think, so I, I think that you should attend the Majeska School. Um, by the time time um, this podcast is released, 
It'll be the day after the orientation, but it's not too late. If you wanted to register then, you probably could still call Brett at the or contact him at yep. network at scpronet. Yes, or you can email him uh, directly about the school at majeskaschool at scpronet.com. Majeskaschool at scpronet.com. Um, you, can, you can still join in if you haven't. I really hope that if you don't go this time, you'll consider going to a future term because it has been mind life changing yes. and it's not even just mind blowing life changing for me and i'll be hanging around for some of the sessions and if you uh, see me um uh, i'm you might be lucky enough if you can guess my last name uh based on my voice then uh, uh we can talk philip k dick after the lesson yeah that sounds so. great i'll also be to, at some of them especially this next one because i sort of missed the first session last year so i'm excited about hearing it um well, so well thank you vicky for listening and entertaining me to talk about my um, uh, hallucinatory psychedelic experience yep. with and, history. And remember to give us your stories about being a youth in South Carolina at scnewlegacyproject at gmail.com and at sc underscore new legacy on Twitter and Facebook or on Twitter and Instagram and facebook.com slash scnlp. Uh, thanks for your time, Kurt. We'll talk next time. Bye.